Uh, I want to welcome you as we worship by uh, not only song and through prayer, but also by looking to God's word together. So if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and find Titus chapter 3. Uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but I can't believe that we have two weeks left, this being one of them in our Titus series. So we will be uh, wrapping up next week. Hunter is going to close us out, and then we are going to start a uh, short Summer in the Psalms series in which you will see some familiar faces. Uh, Connor will preach, Drew will preach. It will be a really great time, and then you'll hear from some other elders as well. Uh, I'm so thankful that uh, we get to hear from God's Word And I think one of the themes that has been so apparent in the life of our church this year has been this idea of making disciples, maturing as disciples, and multiplying disciples. And as we've looked at chapter 2 in the book of Titus, there was this huge emphasis on the way that Christians are to grow in their depth and knowledge and their application of the gospel and also the way that Christians should interact with one another. And we could, we could almost sense ourselves maybe asking the question, well, what about God's mission? What about taking this good news to the world around us? I think sometimes we could even fall into the trap of thinking that these two things are at odds. Should we focus on uh, being a church that is to mature as disciples? Or are we a church that focuses on making disciples? Are, are we those who prioritize spiritual maturity in knowing who God is, or are we those who prioritize the mission of God and making God known? And it's my aim as we look at Titus chapter 3 to show that there is a correlation between both the experience of the gospel personally and the expression of the gospel publicly. That to use the analogy of a tree, as our roots grow deeper in the nutrients of the gospel, in the fact that we were dead in our sin, and but for the grace of God, we would still be there. But God not only worked on our behalf by sending his son to save us, but has also placed the Holy Spirit within us that he would be continually conforming us to the image of God. That deepens our roots in the gospel And by having deep roots in the gospel, we have wide branches that expand throughout the world. As Acts 1.8 puts it, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But to make it a little more personal, it's the child that has yet to profess faith in Christ that you call son or daughter that lives within your home, that's watching the way that you live. It's the coworker who's going through some painful issue right now, and they don't know where to turn. But in God's providence, they share it with you in the break room this week, and you have an opportunity to pray with them. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth might be some of the kids at the high school that you lead young life at. It might be a college roommate. It might be a neighbor that you meet as they're walking their dog. What I hope that that you see in Titus chapter three is that our experience of the gospel does lead to the expression of the gospel, or to put it in a single sentence that impacts us all, as the gospel grows deeper in disciples, it goes wider in the world. It's not an either or, it is a both and. As the gospel grows deeper in disciples, it goes wider in the world. 
there's this correlation between the spiritual maturity of every believer and the way that they live on mission to make God known. Now, as we look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, I just want to lift four essentials for engaging the world out of this passage. So we're going to look at four essentials, and then uh, just kind of briefly in the last five minutes of my message, we're going to consider four prayers that kind of go hand in hand with the four essentials that we will see throughout this passage. So that being said, let's look at Titus 3. We'll begin in verse 1 and just read all the way down to verse 11. Paul, writing to Titus, who he left in Crete after their missionary journey there together, he writes this, remind them, speaking of the Christians in the churches, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The first essential that we find for engaging the world in this passage is that your conduct among non-believers gives credibility to your message. It's impossible to disassociate the message of the gospel with the messenger of the gospel. And for that reason, your conduct matters because it gives evidence to the fact that the content of the gospel message is true. Your conduct among non-believers gives credibility to your message. That's why Paul here, beginning, says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Then he gives four traits that describe the Christian life as it is lived in the context of the watching world. Now, what do we know from this passage? That Paul says, remind them. So this command comes by way of reminder. This would have been something that Paul would have taught whenever he was on the island of Crete and these churches were kind of yet to be established. Now, it's interesting that this command is given. We can almost assume that because this command is given, that perhaps that unruly live-for-yourself attitude that was popular among the Cretan people was also applied to the way that they viewed government and authority in the civil realm. They were just kind of like, you know what, Uh, we can do what we want. And maybe they would even be prone to exercise their Christian freedom by completely disregarding the authority of the government altogether. And so then Paul here says, be submissive to your rulers and authorities. 
Now, it almost seems like this is a pretty random topic for Paul to bring up here. Why, why go to civil government after talking about the relationship that Christians should have together in the church? Well, he's being strategic here. There's a reason that we have called this series The Trellis. Because it's as if the Christian life and the corporate life of the church is this vine that God has planted through the seed of the gospel. And yet it needs a trellis that provides support for it to grow. A part of that trellis in chapter one was having godly leaders. Another part of that trellis is knowing scripture so that you avoid uh, error. Another part of that trellis is the way that older men and older women and young men and younger women all interact in the body, the church together. So, so Paul has just finished in Titus 2 talking about how the church relates to one another. Now, as he moves into Titus 3, he is showing the way that Christians are to live in the world around him. And he turns to civil government as his first topic of choice because this is the most expansive context in which the Christian in Crete and even in today lives their life. Right, so, so here's this authority that displays your trust in God as you respect it, as you submit to it. How will you live in that way? And then, and then the way that you live under the, the rule of civil government then trickles down into the way that you live in society and relate to each person that is a part of the society that you live in. Now, of course, we don't take this and just say, all right, well, um, then this means that we just obey the government no matter what, whatever anybody says we must do. Uh, no, we know that if the government was to ever you know, ask us to do something that would be sinful or ever impose a law that went against the direct teaching of Scripture, then we would have to reject it. And at the same time, wisdom says this means that we pay our taxes, that we respect our elected leaders, that we abide by the laws of the land. Uh, we've had to do this even as we think about the OCB, the Oaks Church building that we just purchased. We would pretty much already be meeting there if it wasn't for our desire to obey the laws of the land. And yet through this process, we've learned there's a lot of permitting. Uh, we have to get a renewed certificate of occupancy. There's a lot that has to go into this. There are things that we could do that we would do in a safe way, that we would do in a way that would not harm anyone else and we would think would be above board. And yet, because we are committed to doing things the right way and to obeying the laws of the land, we're going through processes of permitting and getting plans drawn and all of these different things. Um, I had a uh, meeting with the city manager of Silverton this past Monday and just kind of walking through all of these things with him. But our desire in doing this is that the conduct, the way in which we do things, gives credibility to our message so that in that conversation, I could say, hey, is there any meeting space like in Silverton for you know, organizations or you know, uh, groups here? And he says, no, you know, there's, there's nothing bigger than you know, a room that maybe holds 40 people. I'm like, well, I would love to develop a relationship with Silverton in which you guys are able to use our building, in which our gym becomes your gym, in which we can open up this building to the community around us to serve us. Now, I would not be able to confidently say that if we were just kind of, you know, wiring things on the side and hoping nobody noticed. And it's like, wait, are you guys even allowed to meet there? Like, you can't do that. And yet, it's, it's our desire to live in a way among our neighbors, our community, so that our conduct gives credibility to the message that we proclaim. Now, seeking to apply this principle, 
some people might, might fall into two errors, okay? So I'm supposed to respect the elected leaders that God has placed over me. And yet there are two errors that I think people could fall into. They can put all of their hope in the government and say, okay, if this law gets passed, everything will be right in the world. If this person is ruling our country or our city, then, then everything will be right. And yet we know that because the world is still broken by sin, that only King Jesus will ultimately make all things right one day. So that would be one error. The second error would be my ultimate home is in heaven, so I don't care about anything that happens here. That wouldn't be helpful either. I think scripture provides an analogy through the life of the Israelites to teach us the way that we should interact with the rulers and authorities over us. There's a story in Israel's history in which they are taken into exile and they are living in Babylon. And no doubt the Israelites were wondering, well, how do we live in this place where the ruler over us doesn't acknowledge the one true God, where the laws of the land are not the 10 commandments? How then should we live? And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, gives these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who put them there? God. Who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We seek the welfare of the city by submitting to the rulers over us, by abiding uh, under the laws of the land and by seeking the welfare of the city, we too find our welfare. God's design in trusting him and who he has placed over us. I mean, consider the way that Daniel lived in that environment. He was able to honor God uh, he, whenever there was some sort of contradiction between the law of the land and the law of Scripture. He disobeyed the government so that he would obey Christ, obey the Lord. And at the same time, we see that he lives peaceably. He's a, a, a part of that society, and it thrives under his leadership. We ultimately know, as Philippians 3.20 says, that our citizen, citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So then Paul moves on. He says we should be obedient. We should be ready for every good work. Think about that for a moment. You should be ready for every good work. Why? Why should you be ready for every good work? Because our behavior can build bridges between non-Christians and Christ. Think about that for a moment. Your behavior can build a bridge between a non-Christian and Christ. Your, your service, your tangible act of service can not only meet a physical need, but also point to a deeper spiritual need that ultimately Christ can meet. We shouldn't just be ready for every good work. We should actively seek to live out these good works. So, I mean, think about where you live, your home, think about where you work. Think about who lives around you. Think about some of the hobbies that you have, people that you're around often. Is there an elderly neighbor that you could mow their grass? Is there a random stranger that you might be standing in the checkout line next to this week? And maybe instead of just staring at your phone, you look up and ask the simple question, hey, how are you doing? And just watch what God would do with that. 
Is there a coworker that feels overwhelmed by a project or something going on? And you could be a listening ear or maybe even offer a helping hand. Are you ready for God's good work in your life? Are you seeking those good works? The U.S. Coast Guard has a motto, Semper Paratus. It means always ready. Now, that's just not a, a motto that they've slapped on some banner or is on a waving flag in an office that, you know, has no bearing on any other aspect of the military. No, because they hold this trait dear, they have men and women that are trained, equipped, strategically stationed in locations where they are ready to serve and protect whenever the need arises. They are trained, they are ready to go, they're actively waiting for any command as it comes and any opportunity as it arises. And the Christian should be the same way. How are you equipped as a Christian? It's by knowing God's word. It's by spending time with the Lord. It's by being prayerful and asking for opportunities to serve. It's by being sensitive to the needs of others, by creating a little margin in your life so that you are not so busy that you can't serve someone when they need to be served. We have very simple things like starting point here at our church where you go through three classes and in three short classes, you get to understand a little bit about the Christian life, the, the beliefs of the Christian life, and you grow deeper in what it means to relate to one another. We have equip classes so that you can be trained in systematic theology and know a little bit more about how you can share your faith through evangelism or something like that. We also have, you know, uh, training day so that, you know, twice a year there are these opportunities in which you can be trained to serve in every part of the life of our church so that we can be those who are obedient to this passage of Scripture, ready for every good work as the opportunity arises. And then in verse 2, Paul moves from kind of this idea of civil government to then society. He gives four traits here. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, look at the contrast between the first and the fourth trait here. He says, speak evil to no one. All right, so this is a negative trait. He's saying, don't do this to anybody. And then the fourth trait is, show perfect courtesy to all people. All right, so you, you shouldn't speak bad of anyone. And yet, you should show perfect courtesy to everyone. It's positive and it applies to every single person that God has made and that you come in contact with. Now, why is this so important? Because as I said before, the message that you proclaim is always associated with the messenger that proclaims it. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel won't be effective if um, it's you know, shared by someone who's not perfect. That's not what I'm trying to say. And yet, there's a lot of truth to the fact that the gospel is an offensive message to people. So we should be the least offensive as possible. I learned that from a, a pastor named Danny Franks. He said, the gospel, the gospel is offensive, but we shouldn't be. Now think about that for a moment. Why would he say that? Well, well, think about the message of the gospel. Now we're not saying that the gospel isn't beautiful. We're not saying that the good news of Jesus isn't you know, this, uh, like, a, like a shining diamond amidst a dark world. But what are we saying? Well, let's just think through the facts here. To explain the gospel is to tell someone, you are dead in your sins. In fact, 
your sinful state is so bad that apart from Christ and apart from God's gracious intervening, the, the payment, the just payment for your sin is an eternity in hell, a place of undescribable torment that will never end. In fact, your sin is so bad that there was only one way that your sin could be atoned for. And that was for the eternal second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, to come and take on flesh and to die in your place, an agonizing and gruesome death. That's how bad your sin is. And you know what? There's no hope of you saving yourself. To use the biblical description of all of your volunteer hours and your good deeds and your philanthropic efforts, those would basically be as much as like worth filthy rags. They're, they're no good to God at all. Well, that is a pretty offensive message, isn't it? I mean, especially in our day and age, there's nothing you can do. This is how bad you are. You're hopeless apart from God. Nobody wants to hear that. We all wanna hear that if we try hard enough or if we're better than the person next to us or if we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that we'll be okay. And yet this message is an offensive message and, and by its nature, it must cause offense to first kind of remove the, the veneer of self-sufficiency so that it can bring the healing of recognizing that God has sent a savior for sinners in his own son, right? We need that. And just because the message is offensive does not mean that we as messengers have to be offensive, right? So this doesn't mean that you have to like scream about God's wrath through a megaphone for someone to comprehend the gospel. Uh, this doesn't mean that, you know, whenever it's the month of December and you're at Starbucks and the barista hands you your coffee and says, happy holidays. This is not like your perfect opportunity to be like, Merry Christmas, snatch your coffee and be like, man, I, evangelizing is so hard, you know? <laughs> Praise God, I'm so good at it, right? No, the message, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. This is an offensive message, and yet we do not have to be offensive messengers. Our conduct matters because we are a conduit of the gospel. Our conduct matters because we are conduits of the gospel that we share. And then Paul gives four specific applications. He says we, we don't slander anyone, right? Uh, so we don't talk bad about people. No, we listen. We become students of people's fears and dreams, anxieties and aspirations, because we, we hope that God willing will have opportunities to share the gospel within the context of who they are and who God has made them. We avoid quarreling. That's the second trait that Paul gives here in verse two. James 4.1, he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not the passions that, that wage war within your flesh? Now, this doesn't mean that you sidestep issues that matter. It doesn't mean that you just kind of sugarcoat things that might be hard truths. We just said that. But at the same time, it means that you are able to discern the difference between a helpful discussion and a heated debate. And maybe some of us need to hear that. Right? We, can, we can discern the difference between just getting into a, a heated debate where we're hoping that we'll win, maybe even on some of the issues that are particularly popular this month. What's the difference between a heated debate or a helpful discussion? Do you view the person in front of you as an image bearer to be loved, to be redeemed by a lifestyle or by a sinful habit that is detrimental to their soul? Or do you see them as an opponent to be defeated in an argument? 
We're not quarrelsome. Third, we are gentle. We're gentle. I mean, we can't hear this and not be reminded of Jesus who described himself as gentle and lowly. And consider Christ. Consider the way that that he speaks to Nicodemus in John 3. A man who comes at night because he doesn't want other people to see him. He's got some questions. He's wrestling with these deep truths. And, And Jesus, with the omniscient knowledge of an omnipotent God, could, I mean, just recite truth that would make him feel small. And yet he leads him with thought-provoking questions. He's gentle. Think about the leper who had not felt the warmth of physical touch for years. And Jesus, the high and holy son of God, places his hand upon his shoulder. He's gentle. Consider the man who was crippled at the gate, didn't have the strength to even crawl on his hands and knees toward Christ. But Christ moves to him that he could be redeemed and saved. Christ is gentle. And yet if you're sitting here and you've personally received the message of Christ, then there is an example of this gentleness that hits closer to home. It's the way that Christ has interacted with you. Think about the first time that you ever heard this gospel message. What did Christ do? He didn't magnify your shame to make you wallow in your guilt. He doesn't heap more burdens upon you. No, he points you to the cross. He points you to his own agonizing death on your behalf that secured your eternal life. The exchange is just your repentance of sin and placing your full faith in him. That's gentleness. And what about today? Christ hasn't changed his disposition toward you. If anything, the warmth of Christ's gentleness should be experienced by you now to a greater degree than when you would have first felt it on the day that you believed. So you're here and you're feeling like your faith is weak. Is your faith clouded with doubt? He is a gentle teacher who comes alongside his sheep. Are you sitting here and you're hurting? You're dealing with some deep relational wounds. He is a gentle healer. Are you suffering? Are you confused? Are you seeking wisdom? He is a gentle counselor. Are you stuck in this cul-de-sac of sin and the cycle seems impossible to break? Don't forget, he is a gentle savior. Why am I reminding you of this? Shouldn't we be talking about those people that are not in this room that don't know Christ as the gentle savior? Why are you telling me again about how he relates to me? Because I want the disposition of Christ toward you to inform the way that you act to those around you, toward your parents, toward your coworkers, toward your landlord, toward your neighbors, toward your acquaintances, that you would show perfect courtesy toward all Christ has shown perfect courtesy toward you. That brings us to our second essential, that reflecting on your former life fosters compassion and humility toward those that do not yet know Christ. Reflecting on your former life before Christ, it fosters compassion and humility toward those that do not yet know Christ. Because maybe as we've talked about how to love those 
that are non-Christians, how to love those that are in the world, specific people have come to mind. And you're like, oh, is there like an exception to these commands? Is there some clause in the fine print of Titus chapter 3 that says you have to love everyone sacrificially and in a servant-hearted way except for that person? Except for that person who talks on the phone really loud at work and microwaves tuna in the break room? Like, is there like a, I don't have to love that guy? Um, I'm the tuna in the break room guy at any place we've ever worked at the Oaks, so Jimmy will tell you that. That's why, that's why I'm able to share this in a safe space. Uh, I mean, there are some people that are hard to love, right? Can we admit that? And yet, what does Paul want to remind you of? You were, you were unlovable at a time too. In fact, sometimes you're still hard to love. Remember who you were. Remember what you still struggle with. And as you reflect on that reality, it should foster compassion toward other people. They are currently living what was once true of you. It should foster humility toward other people. You're, you're here, you know Christ as Savior of no work of your own. He completely did that. So you should be really humble and compassionate toward other people. At the beginning of verse 3, Paul gets personal. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, Paul identifies himself here amongst the crowd of those who were once sinners saved by grace. He says, For we ourselves were once like this. Now, take note of that because remember what we have already read about the typical Cretan person. In their culture, lying was something that was glorified, right? If you were good at deceiving people, that's something like, man, you met that guy? He's like so great at not telling the truth. Like they would like brag about that kind of stuff. They just kind of gave into their own pleasures. If they wanted something, they took it. That was the sinful culture of Crete. Now, Paul, the man who God saved on the road to Damascus, the Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin has all of these religious accolades to his name, says, we ourselves, right? He associates his sin of self-righteousness as being on the same plane as the sin of sensuality that was present in Crete. And what does this teach us? That you might sin different than someone else, but you sin the same as everyone else, right? You might sin different than someone else, and sometimes that can cause you to be judgmental or feel superior to someone else, but you sin the same as everyone else. Because Romans 3.23 has outed us all, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Paul here says, we ourselves, and we right along with him could say the exact same thing. The only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the grace of God. It's not because we figured out a, a secret formula or because we solved a riddle or performed some religious rite. It, because God in, it is because God in his grace displayed his mercy to us. Now let's reflect briefly on these seven characteristics that Paul points to here in regards to our former life. Foolish. We didn't make the right choices. We were without knowledge of who God is and, and what we were commanded to do. 
We were disobedient. We rebelled against the authority of God. And even if we would have understood the authority of God, we would have no ability to be obedient to it. We were led astray. We were like sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable and unprotected. We were enslaved. We were held captive by the chains of sin. And sin is an unmerciful master. Five, we were living with malice and envy. Our sin isn't just a vertical problem that separates us from God. No, it spills over into our relationships. Because of that, we're hated by others. Our sin makes us hard to love. And seven, we hate one another. We begin to view other people as competitors for our personal glory. We see other people as opponents to our comfort and power. So not only are we hated by others because of our sin, we hate other people. That's a terrible place to be. And that's exactly where every person is before they place their faith in Christ. So how do we apply this truth of reflecting on our former life? Well, first, let's acknowledge that some of these characteristics are not just in the past tense. They're areas in which we've lived foolish this week, where we acted like we were still a sheep without a shepherd. So we come to the Lord asking for the same mercy that saved us to sanctify us. Say, Lord, help me to keep these things in the past tense, that you would continually renew me. Second, we have compassion for those in which this is their present experience. Think about that for a moment. Think about not having the sense of security that knows that God is good, God is wise, and he rules over all creation with two intentions, to glorify himself and for your good. I mean... The past, I mean, some, some of you guys know this, and I've, I've wondered if I would, sh- would share this or not because it's still so, so difficult to process. Um, but uh, Abby and I, we, we were expecting a child, and we were um, about 10 weeks along. And nine days ago, we lost our baby, and we did not expect that. Um, we, you know... Uh, we moved both boys into one room and now we have an empty room at the end of our hallway and it's hard. It's hard. And at the same time, I know that this child is with the Lord and that gives me great comfort. It also causes me to have deep compassion for people who face that kind of suffering and pain and don't have a sovereign God to cry out to. I cannot, I cannot tell you where I would be right now if I did not have a good shepherd who walks alongside myself and my wife in the midst of such heartache. And this grows compassion for people who struggle with sin and don't have a God to cry out to. They deal with that guilt and that shame and that fear of what could potentially happen to them. And they don't have a savior in which to place the weight of that sin on his shoulders. I mean, the the best marriage or relationship that anyone could experience on this earth would be incomplete apart from Christ. 12-step programs are great, but at best, it is a, a process that removes a habit that is harmful but can't release you from the grip of sin. 
That is the present experience of those who do not know Christ. So this causes us to recognize that the greatest act of love that we could display toward any person is to share the good news that Jesus came, lived the life they couldn't live, died the death they should have died, and rose again to offer them the eternal life that he himself lays claim to. That's an act of love as we're broken with compassion for other people. Third and finally, it it fosters humility toward non-Christians. Because I think we can grow judgmental toward people who are saying, oh, I can't believe they would spend their money like that. This seems like such a reckless way to live. Why do they care so much about success? The better question is, how could they not? What else are they going to live for? We should be humble, not judgmental. We could also fall into the sinful attitude of superiority. But without God's intervention, we would be no different. Perhaps another sinful attitude would just be completely unconcerned, right? This is my life. I'm going to put my spiritual blinders on, only worry about me, my family, my friends, and just unconcerned about them. No, humility toward people causes us to share the gospel to people. And perhaps the most sinful view to have in regards to the salvation of someone else is that their salvation is completely impossible. Is our God too small to save anyone whom he pleases? The same God who parted the Red Sea, spoke Mount Everest into existence and saved your soul can redeem the life of anyone whom he pleases. Perhaps God's concern and love for that person is displayed through your proximity to them. How do you know if God is concerned about them? How do you know that God loves them? You know their name. You know how they're going to spend their time this week. And you know that perhaps if you ask them to grab lunch or coffee, they'd take you up on it. God is concerned about them. God does love them. And the greatest act of love that you could display toward them is to share the gospel with them. When it comes to sharing this gospel message and reflecting on our former life, this this exposes that we are not experts. But we as beggars are more than glad to tell those who are hungry where they can find bread. And Christ is the bread of life. The third essential is that your salvation was not earned, so it can be freely given. This is a logical conclusion, right? If your salvation doesn't have to be earned, then it can be freely given. This salvation, this gospel message is accessible to all because it doesn't require any effort on your behalf. In the Greek, verses four through seven are all one sentence. And with that being the case, let me read it in its entirety. Paul speaks about where we were. And then in verse four, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That word appeared shows that when we were not seeking God, he sought us to reveal who he is toward us, to reveal his salvation that he offers to us. Look at the way that we are active in this passage. You can't find anything. He saved us, verse 5. 
not because of works done by us in righteousness. We, d- we did no righteous works. But according to his own mercy, what did he do? He washes and renews through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work. He pours out these blessings on us richly through Jesus Christ. Who does the pouring? He does the pouring. Verse 7, who justifies us by his grace? God justifies us. We don't justify ourselves. We can't. That we might become something new. Do we make ourselves something new? No. God causes us to become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And notice the Trinitarian nature of this gospel confession. Is God the Father who makes his loving kindness and mercy known? It's God the Father that is doing that. And then what does he do? The Holy Spirit indwells us, washes us clean of the filth of sin, and then brings about this inner transformation, renewing us gradually day by day. So God the Father is involved, the Holy Spirit is involved, and then we see that these blessings are poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, who justifies us, who pays our penalty on the cross. This displays the economy of the Trinity in our salvation. Whenever we think about the Trinity, there are two words that you can use. There's the ontological Trinity that displays that God is one in essence. There's, there's no separation of who God is. God is one. And yet we know that God is one in three persons. So there's the ontological Trinity that he is one, but also the economy of the Trinity. That there, there are things that God the Father has planned and ordained And Christ dies for our sins. The Holy Spirit now indwells in us that God is one in three persons actively working for our salvation. The entirety of God was involved in saving your soul. And verse 5 reminds us that we did not burn a single calorie for our salvation. We did not exert any effort for our salvation. It was completely of his grace. Briefly, I want you to see three reversals that take place because of our salvation that God provides. First is moral. We go from dirty to clean. What does the Holy Spirit do? He washes us. This is language from Ezekiel 36. He pours out the Holy Spirit on us. The same word that was used in Acts 2 to describe the day of Pentecost is now used to describe the way that God has redeemed you. So if you're sitting here, and you belong to Christ, and yet you're struggling with regret from past sin, know this, that there is one way to be completely morally blameless and pure, and it is only through the blood of Christ, and that is exactly what God has done for you. It's also legal, from guilty to righteous. We were condemned in our sin, and yet the good news of the gospel is that Christ not only expunges the guilt from our record, but also accredits his perfect righteousness to us. This reminds me of a a story in the Pilgrim's Progress and part two of Pilgrim's Progress. You might be familiar with this. It's an allegorical story of the Christian life. Well, there's, there's this mirror that hangs in the shepherd's dining room. And this mirror is exquisite because depending on the person who holds it up, they might see themselves in fullness, their flaws, the dirtiness on their face, but flipped and turned in another light, they see that the face looking back at them is the face of Jesus Christ, their savior. 
This is a perfect picture that the gospel both exposes the raw reality of our sin and how impossible it is for us to save ourselves and yet reminds us to behold Christ who has taken the full penalty of our sin and that we should not fix our eyes on our sin, past, present, or future, but focus on the Lord who has saved us from our sin. Third, this is an eternal reversal from orphaned to adopted. We now have an inheritance that is of immeasurable worth made known to us through Christ. How do you respond to this? Well, since your salvation was not earned, it can be freely given. The well of God's grace never runs dry. I love the way that in the book of Isaiah, God invites those who hunger and thirst to be satisfied in him. The call is made to all in Isaiah 55, one through three. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Wait, those with no money can come and buy and eat? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Don't waste your time seeking those things that can't ultimately satisfy. No, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. This displays the accessibility of the gospel to all who hear and believe. Fourth and finally, devotion to the good work of sharing the gospel will help you avoid distraction and division. Devotion to the good work of the gospel will help you avoid distraction and division. In verse 8, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. Some people believed that uh, verses 4 through 7 was kind of an early creed of the church or a poem that many Christians would have recited and have committed to memory about who God was and how God saved them. Regardless, we know that these things are worth being reminded of. And as we grow deeper in this gospel message, our desire to share this message with the world will grow as well. It would be easy for these young churches in Crete to be preoccupied with debates over minor theological issues or to become enthralled with things that didn't really matter. And that's why Paul says in verse nine, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. The world does not need a church that is arguing over predestination. The world does not need a church that is arguing over which spiritual gifts are still in practice or not. No, the world needs a church that knows and follows Jesus. The world does not need a church that is huddled in a basement somewhere, so afraid that we will somehow be influenced by the culture. The world needs a church that lives among those that are yet to know Christ. Because if we don't tell, how will they hear? And if they don't hear, how will they be saved? So we avoid foolish controversies. What do we do with those who give themselves into stirring up division and submitting to different quarrels about different controversies? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us. And after warning them lovingly once and twice, you just say, you know what? 
you're, you're too fixated on this. You don't need to be a part of this church anymore. And that might seem like an overreaction, and yet it keeps us focused and devoted on the good work of, God, of what God has called us to. It shows that there are times that theology must be prioritized over unity for the sake of God's mission. Second, it also is an indicator of someone's dangerous spiritual state. It has a loving thing to do and say, hey, you have become so fixated and focused on this thing that you might care more about this thing than Jesus. And if that's the case, you can't be certain that you truly belong to him. We're not trying to overreact. We're trying to show the seriousness of what is reality. And as we devote ourselves to the good work of making the gospel known, we avoid division and distraction. So how do we respond to this message? Four prayers. I'm gonna leave these up on the screen during the Lord's Supper so that you can reflect on them. And I wanna give them to you briefly here. Each of these correlate with the essentials we just reviewed. The first prayer is, Lord, let your love for me motivate love for others. Let your love for me motivate love for others. Some of you have never received the gospel. There hasn't been a moment in which you recognize the weight of your sin and your state, and you might say, you know what, I think this is a part of like that message being offensive to me. But what have you really grappled with the fact that you are a sinner in need of saving and you received the good news of what God has done for you through Christ? For others, this might be an invitation to remember what God has done for you, to rejoice in what God has done for you, and for that to motivate your love for others. A message on evangelism will only last like a couple days. Guilt or feeling bad about other people not knowing Jesus won't last, but the love of Christ in you will motivate the love of Christ for others. Second prayer, Lord, thank you for forgiving my sin in full, past, present, and future. This prayer is simple because if you are worried about your sin, you won't worry about other people's salvation. If you are worried about your sin, you won't be worried about other people's salvation. But if you know that your sin is forgiven, past, present, and future, then you can offer that to others. Third, Lord, you alone could save me, and that is exactly what you did. I mean, think about that. Only God could save you. Only God could save you. There is one way for you to not spend eternity in hell. And that's what God did for you. And because that is true, you are now pure, just before God, and confident that you will spend eternity with him. Fourth prayer, Lord, give me the courage and desire to devote myself to the good work of making you known. That takes courage, doesn't it? God has to grow this desire in us because we are so easily turned in on ourselves. But as we grow deep roots in this gospel truth, we grow, grow wide branches in the world around us. So may we grow in the gospel and go out into the world to share this life-changing news. Let's pray.